On that alone do we meditate, that alone do we worship. To that alone, the witness of the universe, do we bow. To that one who is our sole eternal support, the self-existent Lord, the raft to safety across the ocean of samsara, do we come for refuge. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning. So today our topic is Vedanta and the near-death experience. The near-death experience, probably most, if not all of us, are familiar with the term. It's becoming uh, a hot topic nowadays. Uh, it's a fascinating phenomenon. People who have died on operating tables, in ambulances, in car wrecks, in swimming pools, and all kinds of other places, and then have revived or have been resuscitated, they sometimes report remarkable experiences that they had of being conscious during that time when they were dead, of being outside their bodies, even of meeting deceased relatives or friends, or of experiencing a divine light, meeting God. It's uh, now becoming widely known. There's TV shows about it radio programs, a lot of books coming out. But it's a recent phenomenon, this uh, spreading of the uh, term. It started with a book in 1975. Before that, no one heard about it. No one would speak about it. It was a doctor named Raymond Moody, had a book, wrote a book, Life After Life. And in that book, he coined the term near-death experience. Before that, it was relatively known, except, of course, uh, to those who had them. And the term near-death experience actually may be somewhat of a misnomer because for people who have actually died, it might be better to call it a, an actual death experience. Near-death suggests that one is near-death, but in many cases, the person has actually died. So they're not near-death, they have actually crossed over. This is also a subject of some controversy. Are they real? Or is it just imagination? Just hallucination, perhaps, or some combination of imagination and hallucination and dream. And The science and medicine, the, the standard answer is just a hallucination conjured up by an oxygen-starved and dying brain. But now there are scientists who are trying to study the phenomenon scientifically who are acknowledging the possibility, at least, that they may be more than just hallucinations. So this field strikes me as a very fertile area for study in which science 
and religion or science and spirituality can find a meeting point where they can meet, where they are meeting. Now, one meeting point of science and religion has been quantum physics. Quantum physics, the quantum physicists know that how one observes an experiment affects the outcome of the experiment. In other words, consciousness plays a pivotal role in the science of quantum physics. And some have begun to, begun to theorize that consciousness is uh, maybe the fundamental principle of the universe. But quantum physics is not for the layperson. There are perhaps a very small handful of people in this room who actually know much about it. We all have heard of, of Higgs bosons and things like that, but actually it's beyond most of us to understand what is quantum physics really. But with near, the near-death experience, we have a phenomena taking place in our own homes to our own friends and relatives. It's very close to home. It's something we can at least feel close to. We can, feel, we can understand it if, even if we're not uh, trained in advanced physics. Now, Swami Vivekananda, we know, was very interested in this coming together of science and religion. And uh, he felt that what we call modern science is gradually coming to the same conclusions as the ancient sages of Vedanta. That Vedanta and modern science are coming together, they are converging. He had even planned a book, uh, the first chapter of which he said, will be on cosmology showing the harmony between Vedantic theories and modern science. Now science and religion, often they seem diametrically opposed. Science wants proof. Religion demands faith. Science says, see. Religion says, believe. Science says, do this experiment. Look in this instrument. Verify my experiment. Verify my observation. Religion says, it says so in my book. You have to believe it because it says so in the book. Of course, Vedanta is an exception to this. It can be said to be the science of spiritual life. For it also says, see. It says, I, ha I have seen. You also can see. Follow these steps and you can realize. It's based also on experience. Replicable experience. But... Traditional, the traditional dualistic religions, the religions of most of the people of the world, have been more or less destroyed by science. Swami Vivekananda puts it this way, modern science and its sledgehammer blows are pulverizing the porcelain foundations of all dualistic religions everywhere. For instance, evolution. Evolution is, has shattered the myth of creation, that the world was created in seven days or in however many days, and it's clearly just a myth. Evolution has proved it. So gradually, uh, the religions are getting smashed by science, especially this development of materialism. The scientists have... Uh, developed the idea that matter is the basis of everything. Materialism 
is what we can perceive with our senses is real. There is nothing beyond what we can perceive with our senses. And they come to a stunning conclusion. A stunning conclusion. Consciousness is just a product of matter. What we feel is consciousness is simply the result of chemical interactions and electrical interactions in the cells of the brain. Now, the near-death experiences, the reports of these near-death experiences, if they are true, will shatter this myth, which is what it is, a myth that consciousness is produced by matter. If the near-death experiences are true, then this is proof that materialism is wrong. For they report experiences, conscious experiences, while the body is dead and the brain is dead. Now these reports have been met with great skepticism by the medical community and the scientific community, as I mentioned. Why is this? One reason is that the idea that consciousness is produced by matter is considered such an established fact by scientists, they just can't understand, that, can't accept that it could be something more. Kind of like the conclusion that the Earth was the center of the universe. When Copernicus suggested, well, actually, the data shows that the sun is actually at the center. It took a long time for people to accept it. So likewise, I think we're at a point right now where the established doctrine of materialism is beginning to crack. We're beginning to see cracks in it, even in the scientific community. As the, and what's particularly fueling this cracking, we can say, is this study of near-death experiences as they become wider, more widely known and also are becoming scientifically studied. On the other hand, it's also easy to understand why um, we feel that consciousness, why, why medicine, why neuroscientists think that consciousness is produced by the brain. Because, let's face it, for most of us, the physical side very much influences our consciousness. Drink a cup of coffee, wake up, take an antihistamine, you fall asleep. Drink a, bo- uh, drink a bottle of wine? Well, <laughs> so clearly the physical side affects our state of consciousness. Mm. Take the case of tragic diseases like Alzheimer's disease, a, pers- a brain disease in which uh, the person loses his or her ability to think and to form memories, to recall things. It seems like there's a lot of mm, physical basis to our consciousness. seems like it. So it seems like a reasonable conclusion that actually consciousness is a product of brain activity. So this area is a new area of study in which this conclusion is being called into question. And it's coming especially through a branch of science, a branch of medical science called resuscitation medicine. It's a very new field in medical science resuscitation medicine. That means the science of resuscitating people who have died. 
the first, the first real start of this field was in the 1960s with the development of cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or CPR, which is now a standard practice with anyone who, whose heart has stopped. And there's been a lot of progress with drugs and various equipment, and it is now possible to resuscitate people who may have died minutes or even hours earlier, especially if the body is cold. There are reports of people being resuscitated after hours after drowning in an ice-cold lake. And this is also the reason why now, if someone's heart stops, one of the first things that the emergency technicians do is to chill the body. They'll take bags of ice and put it on the body. So to... to uh, lengthen the window of opportunity for resuscitating. So this is a fascinating area of science because death was always a one-way street. It was a point of no return, an uncrossable boundary. Crossing that line, no one returns. But, and endless speculation about what happens when we cross that line. From ancient times to the present, people have theorized and wondered and thought about what happens at death. Heaven, Swarga, path of light, path of smoke, Yama's messengers, Hades, the angel of death, the grim reaper comes to take you away, or nothing at all. In fact, there was an article in yesterday's Washington Post, no, I think it's today's Washington Post magazine, a humor columnist who's joking about, his conviction is, there's, when you die, you die. It's over, that's all. That's also a widely held view. So how amazing what started happening as people are being resuscitated. The doctors began getting very unusual reports from some of their patients. That they had very unusual experiences. That they didn't become unconscious, but rather they were more conscious at that time that they could know what had transpired around them. Even if they had some transcendental experience, some meeting deceased relatives, or seeing a light, going to a heavenly realm. Most doctors brushed these reports aside, dismissed them as hallucinations, which is why many people who have these experiences don't tell others about them, because it's a very common experience to have uh, Someone tells one or two people, and they say, oh, that was, that was just a hallucination. Well, that was a nice dream. Don't worry about it. In fact, we usually think of dogmatism and fundamentalism as belonging to the realm of religion. But science has its equally uh, narrow dogmatism. And Swami Vivekananda cautions, it is not the sign of a candid and scientific mind to throw overboard anything without proper investigation. Surface scientists, unable to explain the various extraordinary mental phenomena, strive to ignore their very existence. So, I think scientists are now coming to be less, to be deeper scientists, some of them in this area. They are, they're part of the, 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 well, this, this wall of silence about near-death experiences, about the reports of the people who had died, began to crack in 1975, as I mentioned, with the publication of Raymond Booty's book, Life After Life. This book became an international bestseller, 
sold 13 million copies. It was translated into a dozen languages. And uh, in the book, uh, Moody interviewed hundreds of people who had these near-death experiences and found that they contained a number of common factors. Though each experience was unique, they had a number of elements that were very similar. Moody identified nine of them. Gradually, other books started coming out, and now there's a, a lot of books, including some books by scientists. In fact, two of the books that I consulted came out in 2010 and 2013, this, this year itself. So it's really current science right now. There are scientists studying this. It seems as if a kind of critical mass has been reached. So now let's get into the what actually happens. What are people experiencing? What are they reporting about these experiences? There are these common elements across cultures, across religions, across ages. Old people, young people, even young children are having the same kind of experiences. So it starts with a person who dies or nearly dies from cardiac arrest or some drug allergy or complications in surgery or a disease or drowning or a car accident. There's so many ways to die. And we find near-death experiences connected with very many of them. So the first experience that people often have is an out-of-body experience. They find that they are somehow floating over their body. They're seeing their body from above. Sometimes they don't even recognize their own body. But they, they see a body and suddenly they realize, oh my gosh, that's my body. That's not me, that's my body. I'm going to run through these quickly and we'll look at them a little more in depth. Second, their senses, the senses become heightened, more intense. There is increased clarity, uh, intense colors can be seen, more intense than normal waking consciousness. There are often intense and generally positive emotions or feelings of, of a vast peace or in infinite love, joy. Many experience then entering a tunnel as if they're going to some other dimension, going through a tunnel and seeing a light at the end of the tunnel, moving very fast, at, at sometimes at lightning speed through a tunnel. Many will encounter a brilliant light, a kind of mystic brilliant light that they identify as divine. Many encounter other beings, both mystical beings, perhaps guides, or they, they call them as um, their eternal companions, or else deceased relatives from this life. Many experience a, a sense of altered time. Time seems to stop. Many have a life review. Their whole life flashes before their eyes. They see all the details of their whole lives, including often the most insignificant details, seemingly, insig seemingly insignificant details. Some encounter unworldly or heavenly realms. They may encounter uh, a special knowledge. They may suddenly get an insight into the whole purpose of life and the special mission of their own life. And many encounter a barrier, 
or a boundary, a point of no return, and they understand at that point that if they cross that barrier, they won't be able to return to the body. And then, finally, they return to their body. Some voluntarily do so, they choose to do so. Oftentimes, they are sent, they come back involuntarily. They don't want to come back, but they are told, it is not your time, you have to go back. And they say, no, I'm so happy here, why should I want to go back? And still, they have to go back. So, we'll look a little more at this out-of-body experience first. Vedanta and other traditions also teach that we are not our bodies, that we inhabit the body, but we are not the body. But let's face it, we don't know it. We feel fully identified with our bodies. If the body is sick, I say, I'm sick. When someone asks me how old I am, I say, I am 46 years old, or whatever it may be. I don't say the body is 46 years old, I say I am. So I am identified with the body. Now, Holy Mother says, the body is one thing, and the indweller in the body is another, the soul is another. She calls it the deha and the dehi, the body and that which is within the body. But the soul pervades the whole body, Therefore, I have been feeling the pain in my leg. She knows that they're separate, and yet they're somehow inextricably bound. But in the out-of-body experience, as part of the uh, near-death experience, the person finds him or herself separate from the body and suddenly realizes, I am not the body, experiences it directly. I'll read one, ex- one example. A boy was electrocuted in his garage. He writes, As I was being electrocuted, I left my body and floated above the scene. I was surrounded by a warm, diffuse light, but could see everything clearly. I could see my body shaking and convulsing with the electrical current. My eyes were open, my mouth was open, but I couldn't speak. I seemed to know that I was going to die unless something changed. I don't remember being scared or frightened at all, very matter-of-factly. While floating, I went over to where my dad was working at the other end of the garage. He had his back to my body and wasn't aware of what was going on. I went over to him, and then he looked up from his work on the floor, turned to see my body being electrocuted. He picked up a hammer and threw it across the room and knocked the extension cord out of my hand. So that's how he was uh, rescued by the hammer being thrown. These, this is one uh, way that these um, can be verified, these out-of-body experiences. People often uh, see things that can be verified afterwards. Say, this boy saw his father throwing a hammer. There are many such uh, instances which lend a great deal of credibility to the experience, that it's not just an imagination because they have seen something that afterwards was verified by other people, that yes, this thing did happen. Some of the most remarkable out-of-body experiences happen in hospitals, in emergency rooms, when patients die and have cardiac arrest. Now, cardiac arrest, I learned, I didn't know this, it means the heart stops. It 
A heart attack means there's some problem going on in the heart. Cardiac arrest means the heart stops and it, and the person, they call it flat lines. Flat lining means nowadays they have all the kinds of equipment and the, the heart monitor has a little squiggly line. Now when that line becomes flat, that means there's no activity in the heart at all. So when you flat line, that means the heart stops completely. Now it turns out that when the heart stops, all, within 10 to 20 seconds, all the organs of the body also stop functioning. Within 20 seconds of the heart stopping, the brain also flatlines. The EEG, which measures electrical activity in the brain, goes flat during cardiac arrest. Yet at this time, when the brain is not functioning, some of these patients are reporting highly conscious experiences. They float above their bodies. They see doctors working frantically in a panic to restart the heart. And yet they themselves feel utterly unconcerned, at peace. They can hear all that is going on in the room, see it from above. And this, oftentimes we find things that can be corroborated. For instance, there was a man who had a cardiac arrest, and they were putting a breathing tube in his mouth. And the nurse found he had dentures, so she removed the dentures and put them in a drawer on the cart. Now, he turned out that he was resuscitated, and later in his hospital room, he didn't have his dentures. No one could find his dentures. He said, well, they're in the drawer on the cart. And sure enough, they found them there. So, oftentimes the doctors receive these reports with incredulity. They simply can't believe it. You were dead. There is no way you could have known that. Now, if there were one or two such stories being passed around, we might also consider them as just myths, as just stories. The kind of stories that get passed around in email nowadays. Well, my best friend's aunt's son-in-law in Topeka, Kansas, she had this experience in the hospital. Or I heard about this guy in Anchorage who froze to death or something. But no, this is not the case. It's not a matter of a half a dozen stories or a dozen stories. It's not even a matter of a few hundred stories. It's a matter of thousands of reports, thousands of reports being collected and studied. So this, the sheer number of near-death experiences that are now being reported, mm, this is furnishing not only evidence, but real proof, real proof that consciousness does not depend on brain function. Because when people are, people's brains are not functioning at all, they're still having intensely conscious experiences, which they can remember and report afterwards, and events can be corroborated by others. So some scientists finally are looking more seriously at this data. And I should tell you there's a wonderful website uh, started by one doctor, Jeffrey Long, who is one of the scientists studying this phenomenon. And he uses the website as a tool for study. There's an extensive questionnaire with uh, maybe more than 100 questions. Uh, and people voluntarily go through the questionnaire and answer the questions, and then using statistical tools, he analyzes the data provided. And the questionnaire also helps to weed out false people who make stuff up. And uh, one, another example of a scientific study that uh, one doctor is doing, they're working on... It. So if in a, an out-of-body experience one can see things in the room, 
they thought, let's put something in the room and then see if they see it. So they put some images on little shelves near the ceiling. Oftentimes the people report that they were floating up by the ceiling. So they put a little shelf up by the ceiling and put a, a piece of paper with an image on it. And the idea is if someone has a near-death experience and an out-of-body experience in that room, they will see the image and they can tell us about it afterwards. It seems to be some problem with the microphone. Maybe it needs a new battery, I don't know. So it's a little funny to me they're putting shelves up near the ceiling. And, but this is how scientists think. They want, to be able to, they want to have a hypothesis and then devise a test for it. And then this, if the results are positive, this will really go a long way towards convincing skeptics. Well, we did a controlled experiment and we had the result. So these out-of-body experiences raise very interesting questions. On the one hand, they're, first of all, they're, they're establishing without a doubt that we are not uh, physically based beings, but we are consciousness. Consciousness is uh, not arising out of matter. Mm. And it raises the question, well, if that's the case, what is the na- why do we feel like we're in the, stuck in matter? And what's the nature of the connection? If we, who we are is not matter, then how are we interacting with matter? And then what is the relation between the mind and the brain? The mind clearly is able to function without the brain. It is able to think and perceive, and yet it's also clearly very much affected by the brain. So these are very interesting questions, and it's, I feel, a very exciting area of study. Now, near-death experiences turn out to be much more common than we would imagine. And I feel that most likely in this room, there are several people who have had them. One I know definitely who has told me, but uh, I won't be at all surprised if several other people have had them. And uh, in my life, I have heard direct reports from six, six or eight people of near-death experiences that they had. And one thing that strikes me hearing them directly is there is no doubt when people have these experiences. There is a conviction that the experience was real. And that conviction brings a great strength of mind also. And a great enthusiasm, a great enthusiasm for uh, the knowledge that they are not uh, limited uh, mortal bodies, but immortal but they don't, as I mentioned, they don't often talk about it. There's a risk of getting sent to a mental hospital. And that risk may be reducing, but it's still there. Now, what we have touched on thus far is really just the very tip of the iceberg of this field of near-death near experiences. I'd like to go and discuss some of the more transcendent experiences that people have. Once out of the body, many experience uh, a kind of 360-degree vision. They describe it as 360-degree vision. They're aware of many things happening simultaneously and are not restricted to seeing only towards the front. Let me read an example. As my emotions were being drawn away from my surroundings... I started to notice how I was continuing to expand to fill every space. 
until there was no separation between me and everything else. I encompassed, no, became everything and everyone. I was fully aware of every word of the conversation that was taking place between my family and the doctors, although it was physically some distance away, outside my room. I knew the frightened expression on my husband's face and could feel his fear. It was as though in that instant I became him. Simultaneously, although I hadn't known of it previously, I became aware that my brother, Anup, was thousands of miles away on an airplane, anxiously coming to see me. This experience was corroborated. The conversation checked out, and her brother Anup was indeed on a plane. She continued, There I was, without my body or any of my physical traits. Yet, my pure essence continued to exist, and it was not a reduced element of my whole self. In fact, it felt far greater and more intense and expansive than my physical being, magnificent, in fact. I felt eternal, as if I'd always existed and always would, without beginning or end. I was filled with the knowledge that I was simply magnificent. Once the consciousness is freed from the body, it seems to be freed also from the limits of the senses, limits of the brain. Perception becomes very clear and intense, and we experience our own magnificence, or we can experience it. The most uh, inspiring and really exciting uh, reports of near-death experiences describe intensely spiritual, uh, transcendent, and mystical experiences. Uh, the majority of reported near-death experiences have at least some elements of these kinds of experiences. I mentioned the website of the uh, Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. I have read dozens and dozens of these reports, and they're just fascinating and so inspiring Many of the experiences and insights corroborate the teachings of Vedanta. And what is especially exciting is these are ordinary people like you and me. They're, they have these experiences. They're not great saints or yogis. They're not deep meditators. And yet they're having these profound, indescribable divine experiences which completely transform their lives. These reports some of them read like scripture. One can read them again and again and get inspired every time. Afterwards, the people who have had these experiences, several things happens to them. First of all, after a near-death experience, the person completely loses fear of death. It's simply gone. They don't fear dying anymore because they know they don't die. Second, they often become more compassionate, loving. They become more spiritually inclined. And at the same time, they often become much less religiously inclined. The experiences often do not tally with the doctrines of various religions. Most uh, doctrines, uh, ideas of eternal damnation, they don't arise in these experiences. So... 
they go beyond the limited conceptions of religion and they realize that the divine is real and beyond all words and ideas. So I'll read some examples of the more transcendent experiences. This one, Francis, who was in a car accident. I was then in front of the being of light. I thought it was too bright to look into it, but I could. It filled me with awe. I was trying to recite poetry to describe it. I couldn't. I could feel its love and kindness. I asked, was it Jesus or Buddha or Muhammad? It said, I am the light. There's a woman named Michelle. She was shot in the neck from behind by her boyfriend. If you can imagine that. I could see myself from below myself, as if I were perched on a corner of the ceiling in the room, looking down at myself. I saw all kinds of police and firefighters looking over my body and stepping around me. I had no pain. I had no blame towards anyone, no ill feelings. I felt so blissful and whole, full of the most love I had ever experienced. I thought to myself, if this is dying, then it is not as bad as everyone thinks it is. Then I saw a light from above me. It was pulling me away from the room. I figured it was okay to just let this happen, to go with the flow and accept whatever was to be. The light was getting brighter, engulfing my body. Body? I had no body. It stayed back down in that damp room. I realized that I was dead physically, but mentally I was still alive. My soul was now my body. I looked up into the light. I could see someone beckoning me to come. He was there at the end of this lit tunnel. Then I heard a voice. It was a man's voice. He asked me if I was ready. I felt so good. It was so easy. We are fortunate that some of the people who had these experiences also have a gift with language and poetically transmit at least a glimpse of their experience. Though almost universally they say that they are unable to actually convey the experience with language. Some report even the, dissolve, the dissolution of the ego, after which they describe what can only be called an experience of spiritual illumination, spiritual realization. There was a woman who had a car accident. After seeing her body, she begins to rise, accompanied by a guide. As the extraordinary event unfolded, my escort and I ascended into the sky. Unconditional love became more concentrated. The awareness filled my inner consciousness with joy, comfort, and ecstasy. A blinding, magnetic, brilliant light focused on my forehead, drawing me closer and closer to the light that was beginning to encompass my whole being. 
unconditional love intensely flowed everywhere without effort, honoring and glorifying every cell with a total awareness of physically, emotionally, and mentally being within love at last. Every cell is gently caressed in the all-abundant love, honoring and glorifying every bit of who I am. Love that flowed without any conditions or effort, omnipresent and very real. The love abundantly flowed without any restrictions, conditions or commitments. In amazement, I asked my escort, Oh, is this what heaven is really like? With a smile, light beamed from within himself and answered with a comforting yes. As we ascended, the clutches of the dramas that the ego entertained disappeared. Ego's continual habit of self-sabotage was non-existent at last. The veil which separated me from experiencing the reality of unconditional love was effortlessly dissolved. It's interesting that most of these reports do not name a personal God. Most of the reports uh, discuss the impersonal reality, a light or the source. It's very interesting to read uh, some experiences of deeply religious people whose experiences do not uh, tally with uh, their beliefs, the prior, the, the beliefs they held before. In fact, many people do have a period afterwards of readjustment, which can be very difficult and painful. That experience of being in pure light and love was so blissful, so joyful, so peaceful, and then to be back in the body as a prisoner in chains and back in the old uh, world of So, so different from that world of love and peace, that state, I should say, of love and peace. They find it very difficult. I'd like to read a passage from a woman who was raised in the Bible Belt, a devout Christian who, as she puts it, she accepted all the dogmas of eternal heaven and hell. And uh, afterwards, she had to leave the church, her So she writes, I turned around and was immersed in light. I was surrounded by unconditional love and total acceptance. I knew I was complete at last. Never had I felt such safety and serenity before. Suddenly, I had all knowledge. All that I had ever heard or known was swept away. I knew that Christ had not died on the cross and that there is no sin or evil. I knew that I had existed since the moment of creation and that I shall always exist and that all consciousness is in the act of becoming. I knew that I had lived many times in physical reality and I watched those expressions and observed each of them. I experienced what we mean when we say that we have free will and that we choose everything. There are no absolutes. I watched every thought I had ever chosen to its natural end and each person it had touched. 
one interesting uh, experience, a woman from Mexico who had an acute asthma attack, she uh, saw an image of Jesus. She saw Jesus looking as he did in the painting in her Sunday school. And she, she says, Jesus looked just like he did on the poster in my Sunday school class. I had the thought that if I had been a Buddhist, perhaps he would look like Buddha. And I was told, that's right. God appears in a familiar form. So this is so much in accord with our ideas of Vedanta. It's a, it was very difficult to choose which passages to read. And probably there's another hour's worth of passages I could read. <laughs> because they're so fascinating. I'd like to touch a little bit on the life review. People uh, report experiencing a review of their whole life, all the details of it. And, uh, but it's not a kind of a judgment. The one idea is that we are judged for our actions and weighed. There's the, the divine judge who's going to weigh. Turns out many people report that, no, there's no other judge but myself. I was seeing everything and I was understanding what I did well and what I did poorly. And some describe experiencing their actions as experienced by others. Every little uh, nasty word that they said, they could feel how the other person felt hearing that nasty word. Every uh, little smile that they gave to a, a stranger, they could feel how that stranger felt receiving that smile. One man named Justin writes, Many events in my life I experienced, but not from how I remembered it, but from the point of view I experienced it from how the people, the animals, the environment experienced it around me. The times I had made others happy and sad, I felt it all as they did. It was very apparent that every single thought, word, and action affects everything around us, and indeed, the entire universe. In the life review, we judge ourselves, no one else does. The light did not, but with no ego left and no lies, we can't hide from what we have done, and we feel remorse and shame, especially in the presence of this love and light. Another woman describes how um, she uh, experienced the life review, as it were. Here I could see the whole picture, how every thought and motivation of the previous life passage snaked tendrils of manifestation into the world, and how each tendril rolled out to affect other people and all of life. I felt everything, every little kindness, every subtle dig, each moment of carelessness, the wasted potentials, the comfort passed on to others, the secret joys, impatience, self-pity, a genuine smile to a lonely person at the right moment, ripples from a tossed pebble. I experienced how everyone experienced my actions and intentions and how everyone they affected felt 
and so on down the chain of action and reaction flowing even into nature itself. More importantly, I could see the bar, how things could have been if enacted with pure love. Each action was balanced by its effect on the life force in total. The chain ran from my link back up, retracing and revealing why I made the choices I did, why my full intentions were not in alignment with my professed goals, saw the causes and effects throughout multiple lifetimes. It was as if the web of this incarnation was a soft silk, and we were holding it up to examine, thread by thread, seeing how it draped in all directions from each point we lifted, seeing where the tensions ran through other layers and other lifetimes. With this review, there was no blame, no shaming, no rejection. The supportive sense around me remained lovingly, fully understanding, as if actively trying to both celebrate the successes and compassionately witness the total alongside me. Vedanta, of course, is the idea of karma is very important. And this kind of experience puts it so beautifully. We can understand the, her personal experience of what is karma. Not just a theory, not just some kind of cold calculating law that every action has its effect but how she puts it so beautifully, how every thought and motivation of the previous life passage snaked tendrils of manifestation into the world, and how each tendril rolled out to affect other people and all of life. So this is the modern, the modern rishis. <laughs> the modern rishis are these, some of these uh, people who have had these near-death experiences. It is tremendously inspiring, for me at least, to study these accounts and to see the parallels with Vedanta and the sheer number of reports is overwhelming proof in itself that these are real experiences, not just uh, the hallucinations of a dying brain. You know, the... the uh, the skeptics will say, well, you know, when the brain dies, it, 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 certain electrical things happen, and that would look like a tunnel when the brain is starved of oxygen. But when the, if you look at other people who didn't die whose brains were starved of oxygen, they may have seen a kind of tunnel, but they didn't have any experience of a loving, uh, uh, unconditional love and light. It was a less conscious experience, a dull experience. These experiences are all intensely real. And the fact that these people are not great saints or yogis or meditators, but just ordinary people like myself, that is also a great reassurance. We have the idea sometimes that, well, the last, the last thought at our time of dying determines where we go. And this is corroborated by at least one of the experiences, that it, it makes a difference in what happens to us afterwards. But clearly, many of these people we're not thinking, most, almost none of them report thinking anything spiritual at the time of death. In fact, one reports that he was, as he was leaving the body, he saw a piece of chewing gum on the sole of his shoe. 
and he was wondering, did the, any of the chewing gum get on the carpet of his car? <laughs> and right after that, he had a transcendent experience of light. So it's great assurance that even if we don't have a holy thought at the last moment, still there's every chance that we will have a positive experience. So I think in closing, I pick one of these and it's a little bit long but this is another really beautiful one so I close with uh, reading this report by one woman named Linda she was raised in the Southern Baptist tradition which is uh, we can say a fundamentalist tradition fundamentalist Christian tradition and she said it's full of hellfire and damnation and she writes that the wrathful, vengeful God, as taught by my religion, instilled in me a deep fear of God, death, and the afterlife. So this woman was a, had a great fear of death. So what happened? She had a long illness, uh, an immune disorder, and finally she died. As my mind cleared, scoured of the remnants of mortal past associations, I was finally able to open my being fully to spirit and my vision cleared. With the eyes of my soul body, I looked to see what held me in such love, and I beheld a radiant spirit being, so magnificent and full of love that I knew I would never again feel the sense of loss. I have no way of explaining how, but I knew the Spirit was Christ. It was not a belief, perception, or understanding, but my recognition of Christ came from my new perspective of Spirit. I did not see the Spirit as I had seen Jesus of Nazareth depicted in paintings, but the innate knowing of my heart remembered and acknowledged Christ. The radiant Spirit was Christ, the manifestation and expression of pure love. Because of my Christian education, I knew no other name to call what I felt as I looked at him. Others might have called him Buddha, or Yahweh, or Great Spirit in the Sky, but the naming did not matter. Only the recognition of absolute love and truth was important. Safe in the gentle yet powerful embrace of his love, I rested, secure that everything was okay, exactly as it was supposed to be. Ascending ever farther, I lifted my eyes to see a great light in the vast distance. With Christ as my guide, I rapidly approached the light. Ecstasy filled my soul as I looked at the radiance, many-fold brighter than the sun. The light was everywhere and everything, the brightest I had ever seen and dazzling beyond description. Brilliant enough to blind or burn, yet I was not harmed. The light moved over and through me, washing every hidden place of my heart, removing all hurt and fear, transforming my very being into a song of joy. I had thought the love I felt from Christ was complete, yet the light toward which we were soaring was the fulfillment of my search, the loving source of all that exists, the God of truth and unconditional love, 
the origin of creation. My understanding of love was forever changed. The majesty and glory of that vision was an ineffable moment that defined forevermore the direction of my new truth. I was home, and I wanted nothing more than to remain in the light of God. Christ had delivered me into the light, and I stood in the presence of God. I was filled with complete knowing. The light was love, and love was God. Waves of consummate love which emanated from the light obliterated every burden I carried and every thought that kept me from knowing God. I was made aware of my purity. With new clarity, I realized I had been walking through life ghost-like, wrapped in a shroud of fear, huddled against illusions. I stood like a lover, open to the liquid flow of golden light that filled my empty shell to overflowing. There was no limit to the outpouring as I came to the rapturous awareness of the infinite nature of God's love. There was no place that God did not exist, and I was within God. I am an inseparable part of the light. The truth of who I am, indeed, who we all are, is perfect love as a creation of God. All of God's creation is one creation, and I am one with creation. God and I are one, creator and created. I had spent a lifetime of fear of judgment, and now, standing with God, I had been known completely and found faultless. I knew God regarded me as perfect. God loved me because love is the totality of God. God loves without limit. Finally, it all made sense. God could only love me because God is, is only love, nothing other than love. The only reality is God. There cannot be another. And God is love. Om Sarvastaratu Durgani Sarvobhadrani Pashyatu Sarvasad buddhimapnotu, sarvasarvatranandatu, durjana sajjano bhuyat, sajjana shanti mapnuyat, shanto mucheta bandhe bhyo muktaschanyan vimochayet, swastiprajabhyaf paripalayantam, nyayena margena mahimahishah, Go Brahmane Bhyashubhamastunityam Loka Samasta Sukhilo Bhavantu Om Shanti 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 May all be freed from dangers. May all realize what is good. May all be actuated by noble thoughts. May all rejoice everywhere. May the wicked become virtuous. May the virtuous attain tranquility. May the tranquil be free from bonds. May the freed make others free. May good betide all people. May the sovereign rule the earth following the righteous path. May all beings ever attain what is good. May the worlds be prosperous and happy. Om, peace, peace, peace.